What's up, podcast friends? And thank you for listening to the College Admissions Process podcast. While analyzing the podcast data, I realized that many of the earlier episodes, some of which have received the most overall downloads and are still extremely relevant today, are not being listened to as much as the newly released episodes. This is why I created the alphabetical list of colleges available on the podcast with the link to the related interview to the right of each school. Please use the alphabetical list as part of your college search, which can be found in the show notes and on my website, www.collegeadmissionstalk.com. The alphabetical list serves as a virtual college fair, which of course can be accessed on demand whenever you wish with schools from throughout the country. It also emphasizes, for example, that episode 129 is no more or less important than episode 86. To highlight how valuable the alphabetical list is, I will release past episodes that received the highest overall downloads on Wednesdays throughout the summer. Please share the alphabetical list with anyone you think may benefit, as it has proven to be such a valuable tool for so many listeners. For today's episode, you will hear from Christoph Gutentag, who is the Dean of Undergraduate Admissions at Duke University. Christoph spoke in detail about how Duke reviews students' transcripts, the percentage of students who apply test optional and that are ultimately admitted, while giving great insight into their yield, the five different aspects of their overall application rating system, and so much more. So are you ready? Let's talk about it. Welcome to the CAP, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today Christoph Gutentag, who is the Dean of Undergraduate Admissions at Duke University in beautiful Durham, North Carolina. Christoph, thank you so much for being here today. This is truly an honor. How are you? John, thank you so much for the opportunity to join you. I've been listening to your podcast. I think they're terrific. I, I love the guests that you bring on to the show and, and the insights that they have. So I'm really flattered that, that I was able to join you, and we are doing great. Well, that's terrific. And again, I am flattered and honored to have you. So let's get right to it, Christoph. Let me ask you the obvious what is it about Duke University that makes it so appealing for so many students to want to apply and ultimately attend? Thank you. Uh, yes, and, and, and we're lucky to be a place that, that is attractive to a lot of people. Duke seems to be one of those places that just seems to have everything. The, the students are bright and they are, they're engaged, they're faculty who are at the top of their fields. It's a beautiful campus. The people are nice. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a place that, that, that people like to be at. There's a, there's a strong social element to it. The students like to get involved in activities. Obviously, we're a Division I sports school with just an incredible school spirit. So it, it's one of those places that seems to have something for everybody. It's a, it's a diverse place. We, we get students from all over the country, all over the world, from all kinds of backgrounds. There are a couple of things that I think make it particularly attractive. And, and one of them is that there's an interesting combination of the students being ambitious and supporting each other. That that they they've been successful. They want to be successful. They expect to be successful, and yet they're not 
competing against one another. They support each other in, in large ways and small ways. They feel, they feel comfortable studying together. They feel comfortable uh, sharing notes. They feel comfortable helping each other out if somebody's having a, a, a problem or somebody's finding something difficult. So that atmosphere of the students supporting each other, um, even as they all aspire to success, I think is, is part of what makes it appealing to so many people. The second thing that I've noticed as I have gotten to know the faculty, uh, one of the things that really strikes me is that the faculty uh, like to elevate the students and they, they, take, they enjoy watching their students learn. They enjoy watching them get better. They, they, they enjoy watching them, them sort of get these, develop these abilities uh, and these talents that they've had that that at the university they just they just grow so so it's the it's the excitement and the support of the faculty in the growth of the students uh, that that I think is I think is striking I think Duke likes to say yes to students it's a place that likes to give students opportunities and and listens to them and listens to their ideas it's a place that is open to change it doesn't feel like we always have to do things the way they've been done in the past. Uh, I, I like that. It's part of what's kept me at Duke is, is the institution's willingness to be open to new ideas. And then the final thing is there are these, these kind of nooks and crannies of Duke that, that I constantly learn about that, that, that are just where really exciting work is going on, really exciting opportunities We've got just for example. I mean, these are just things I put together this morning. We have a great com- quantum computing center. Uh, we've really invested in in quantum computing. There's a there's an interesting project that I just learned about called Black in Blue. It's a sports and race project that looks, which I think is very appropriate for Duke, that looks at the intersection of race and sports. Um, that 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 includes classes. It includes lectures. Um, it, it's a it's a really interesting it's a really interesting program that I'm just learning about. And then we have programs like Duke Immerse, where students uh, a group of students can spend an entire semester taking four courses together, exploring an area in depth. All of these things are just great opportunities for some students, um, and other students find other things. So. There's a lot that we offer in, in at a beautiful place with a lot of energy and a lot of spirit. Well, we appreciate that. It's a beautiful campus with tremendous programs, some of which you've touched upon, but also you have bright students who are diverse in terms of a student body. And I love how you talk about that. The difference at Duke is that the students are ambitious, but they're very supportive of each other, which fosters, which creates this beautiful thing that we call the Duke community that I know the students are really happy to be a part of. And I mentioned that, Christoph, because 97% of the freshman class actually returned, which is a tremendous testament to the great work that you do in admissions, but also what Duke as a university does to make sure that their students are happy once on campus. So thank you so much for that overview. And I have to ask you this question, and I know I'm gonna date myself, but I'm a big fan of Duke University basketball. And still remember where I was when Grant Hill inbounded a 79-foot pass to Christian Leitner, 
who beat the buzzer with only two seconds left for them to beat Kentucky 104 to 103 and make it to the final four. In my opinion, by the way, Chris Soft, it's still one of the best NCAA basketball games ever played. But I have to ask, as the dean of undergraduate admissions, do you actually go to a lot of the athletic events and do you work with the athletes on their overall recruitment process? And how does the process differ for student athletes? Thank you for asking that. I, I think that that's, that's a question I think that a lot of people have. They wonder about how a place like Duke can, can work athletics into the admissions process and make it work and, and make it work well. Um, I, I have season tickets to bask to both men's and women's basketball and also football. Uh, those are the sports that I attend the, the most often, although I've, I, I've just recently I went to a great women's soccer game. Uh, there have been there have been another there have been a number of of athletic events that I've really enjoyed going to women's volleyball. Uh, all, all there are all kinds of sports, as you know, fencing. Um, so here's how the process works at Duke for recruited athletes. Uh, they they apply using the same application, but the timing of the timing of the admissions process for recruited student athletes is different because there's the signing period for the NCAA, there are these recruiting periods that that are different for different sports. So there are a couple of things. One, we are flexible with, with respect to student athletes and the timing of the process. They still use the same application as everybody else does, but we have a little bit of flexibility when it comes to the timing of the process. But more importantly, every recruited student athlete is, is vetted by the admissions office. There are four or five of us in this office that work directly with each of the coaches. And we review with the coaches uh, the information about the students that they are interested in recruiting. And we actually have, a, have the say in, in whether it's okay to recruit a student or not recruit a student. And coaches will bring us information about the students and we will make a decision whether it's okay to recruit the student or not okay to recruit the student. Once we give the okay and they can continue to recruit the student, they can offer that student a scholarship. The student still needs to submit and complete and submit an application with all of the parts that every applicant uh, submits. And then, and then we read the application at, at that point. At that point, generally, we know enough about the student that we're, we're comfortable with the decision that we're going to make, but it all comes through the admissions office. I want to welcome back Sean Patel, who is the founder and CEO of Prep Expert. He's a Shark Tank entrepreneur making a deal with Mark Cuban back in 2016. Sean, welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, John. So I just wanted to share with all your listeners real quick that we have an amazing partnership with the College Admissions Process Podcast, and we have a really special offer for all of your listeners. So for any listener who wants to enroll their student into one of our prep expert SAT courses, ACT courses, 
or one-on-one tutoring programs, you can get 30% off just for being a listener of the College Admissions Process Podcast. All you need to do is put in the promo code College Talk. One word, just college talk, and that'll give you 30% off all prep expert SAT courses, ACT courses, or one-on-one tutoring packages. Make sure you use the link in the show notes of the College Admissions Process Podcast. Thank you, Sean. We really appreciate it. To our listeners, as an affiliate partner with Prep Expert, I want to be transparent with you that for every purchase made, the College Admissions Process Podcast will receive a small commission from Prep Expert. But rest assured that we only promote programs that we believe in and feel would benefit our listeners. For more information, please see the Prep Expert affiliate partnership link in the show notes. And now let's get back to the show. Well, I really appreciate that. And speaking of the admissions office, Christoph, can you walk us through the overall application process, of course, at Duke University? Many students and their parents want to know what happens once they hit that submit button. So any insight that you can share, such as whether you evaluate by high school, by region, or even intended major, would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. And and it is, it's a, it's a process that that people wonder about because they they can't see what happens. As you said, they hit the submit button and then and then they just have no idea how we go through it. So I think this is a great question. We have a process. Once the application is complete, once all of the parts of the application that have come from various sources come to us, are put together and, and the application is complete, at that point, the application is read from beginning to end by one of a group of admissions officers who work in a particular region. So what we do is we have groups of admissions officers that will read all of the applications from a region of the country. So it's not a single state, a single state. It's a group of states and a group of admissions officers. So everybody has the benefit of of reading a, a diverse group of applications. Each application is read from beginning to end by one of our admissions officers. I think that if a student has gone to the trouble of pulling everything together, of doing everything that's necessary to complete and submit an application, it's our responsibility to read that application from beginning to end. At that point, once an application has been, has been read by one of our staff, at that point, Some of the applications, maybe about half of them, go on then for further review. And at that point, they receive two more reads, one from one of of the readers that we we hire annually, um, who are generally uh, experienced secondary school or higher education professionals uh, who often have retired. And, and want to stay in the stay in the field, stay in the discipline, and then they're read again and evaluated again fully by one of our regional admissions officers. At that point, now the application's been looked at three times by a minimum of two people, and then again, some of the applications are are so compelling at that point that they get an additional review by myself or a senior staff member, and quite possibly are provisionally admitted. Some applicants are are discussed in admissions committee, 
And then some applications are, are denied provisionally at that point. So at, at, at that point, then we have, we've made the majority of decisions for the majority of applicants. And, and once that whole process is done, then we get a chance to pause to see where we are. And if, if our planning has gone well, at that point, we have room in the process to admit some more students to make the class be as close as we can to the way we want it to be. Uh, so all of that happens behind the scenes. All of that happens between, say, January 1st and the end of March. We change decisions. We feel comfortable changing decisions. We feel comfortable reevaluating students. We feel comfortable asking for more information if we need it. But there's a, there's a sequence of events, a sequence of reading. And then at the very end, we take a look. We see if everything makes, it, makes sense to us. We make sure we have a, a good group of students on the waiting list. Uh, and, then, and then we post our decisions for regular decision around the end of March. Well, I appreciate that. And Christoph, just to dig a little deeper so that we understand the process, with more applications from deserving students, of course, at Duke University than the seats that you have available, how do you determine the percentage to accept, deny, and even waitlist in your process? Again, when you probably, if you look at the next 20% that were denied, their mid 50% range in terms of their GPAs and uh, their SAT or ACT scores, probably not that different compared to the students that you admitted. So I guess what I'm asking is, how do you determine how many to admit and who to admit when you have so many solid candidates applying? John, that's a, that's a great, it's a great question. And, and it's, we are so fortunate in, in having so many, not just qualified, but well-qualified, appealing, and not just appealing students, appealing people uh, who want to be a part of this community. And, and we, it's a challenge, obviously, making those decisions, but we consider ourselves very fortunate uh, to, to be in that situation. And it's, and it's one of the things I like to remind, remind my staff about that, that, that how lucky we are and how fortunate we are. Let me answer your question in two parts. In terms of the number of students that to admit, I work closely with our director of institutional research, who is just so smart and so knowledgeable and so experienced in this. And what happens is near the end of the process, when we've admitted most but not all of the students, he then does his analytical work and, and tells me of the students we've admitted, what the likelihood is of, of how many of them will, will actually enroll. So he takes a history-based approach to what, what we have. And he says, okay, based on who you've admitted, based on their qualities, based on what's happened in the past three years, this is about the number that are going to en enroll. And that lets me know, do I have more space in the class? Do I have less space in the class? How, you know, how, many, how many more students can we, can we admit? And, and whether it's in the School of Arts and Sciences or, or the School of Engineering. And then, that, and, then, and then we have an iterative process where we will make some more decisions. He will rerun the data. And then he tells me, okay, now you've got 
X number left, or now you've got Y number left. And then we do that over the course of about five, six, seven days until we're, until we're close enough to, to post our decisions. Um, we, of course, never know exactly what students are going to do. We never know where else they're going to be admitted. And so we like to have a waiting list that, that is large enough so that regardless of whether we need engineers, humanities students, social scientists, scientists, whether we need students from close by, from overseas, from, from other parts of the country, uh, regardless of what we, what we need to finish the class, that there will be students on the waiting list who are appealing, who, who are there to, to be admitted. Uh, the difference between the students that are admitted and the students that are placed on the waiting list, there's essentially no difference. There's no meaningful difference, in term, certainly in terms of their qualifications. Um, we just have the necessity and the luxury of, 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 picking, of picking some of the outstanding and highly qualified students. The qualities that we look for when we're making our decisions tend not to revolve around academics. What we find is that a lot of students have very strong academic credentials and we don't make fine distinctions uh, between small differences in academic preparation. I think sometimes students and I think sometimes parents worry about you know, a one hundredth of a grade point average or one tenth of a grade point average, or they, they worry about the difference between an A and an A minus in a single class in the sophomore year. Those distinctions, those small distinctions are really meaningless to us. We have the luxury of having very highly qualified students apply. And when we are making decisions, when we are making distinctions, it is very rarely on an academic basis. It tends to be about the sort of things that a student is interested in, the, the, the kinds of activities that they are involved in, and more importantly, their ability to have a positive impact uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the things that make a difference to them, their ability to make things better, their ability to improve something around them. And what that something is, is up to them. We don't make a judgment about what they should or should not be involved in. What we care about is, do they think well? Do they contribute to the community? Do they contribute to the classroom? Do they make something better? And do they treat other people well? Well, I really appreciate that you talked about that the distinction sometimes is not about academics but it's actually about the ability to have a positive impact outside of academics and to prove that you're willing and able to be a contributor and whatever that is, you know, whether they're uh, athletes, artists, uh, humanitarians. So again, Christoph, I really appreciate that distinction. I was also curious because you kind of touched upon it, your yield percentage from year to year, does it shift much at all? For those listening, what I'm asking about is, in other words, the percentage of students that are accepted that you know will actually attend. What a great question. Uh, does it change from year to year? A little bit. It'll change a percent 
maybe 2%, a 2% change in yield from one year to the next would be a lot. And, and we don't see that. We don't see that, that level of change. Uh, it's interesting. Every year, it's, it's a completely new applicant pool. That's one of the that's one of the interesting things about what we do is every year, the entire group of applicants is is a completely new group of students compared to the year before, and and yet in the aggregate their behavior tends to be relatively consistent. So if the applicant pool, if the qualities of the applicant pool, the distribution of the applicant pool, the preparation of the applicant pool is pretty much the same from one year to the next. And if what our peer institutions are doing is pretty much the same from one year to the next, then the percentage of students accepting our offer of admission tends to stay pretty much the same from one year to the next. Little things change and it'll change a little bit here and there. Uh, but for the most part, it's relatively consistent, with which lets us have a, a good amount of confidence that we're admitting the right number of students, uh, especially since we have the waiting list available to us uh, it, it, You know, if we want to admit some more students. Personally, I enjoy admitting some students from the waiting list for any number of reasons. So we tend to under-admit just a little bit we tend to admit just uh, just under the amount of students that we think we would need to enroll the right size class because it gives us the opportunity to admit some students from the waiting list. Well, we appreciate that. And I was curious, what is the yield percentage generally at Duke University? Right now, our overall yield is about somewhere between 55 and 57 percent. Thank you so much, Christoph, for sharing that. I appreciate it. And speaking of the applicant pool, what is the average profile of the current freshman class in terms of GPA and any other related data you collect, such as SAT or ACT scores? GPA is such, a, uh, is such an interesting measure because it's so different from school to school and school district to school district and from state to state and then certainly from country to country. Um, we don't recalculate the grade point average. We, we accept the grade point average as it's given by the school on the transcript. And that, that's, that's the data we have. It's why when we review an application, by the way, we look at the transcript course by course, year by year, semester by semester, grade by grade. And, and that's, that's what gives us the academic information. The grade point average in isolation doesn't tell us much just because there are so many ways that a grade point average can be calculated. In terms of understanding a whole group of students, grade point or or a school grade point average may be useful in that respect. But in but but between and among schools, it's not it's not terribly useful. The overwhelming majority of our applicants uh, have have graduated in the top ten percent of their class. The the overwhelming majority of the students who enroll, probably in the top two to three percent of their class, we're just lucky to have that as our you know, as as our as our applicant pool and as the students we're able to admit. Among the admitted students this year, um, the middle fifty percent of SAT scores of the students we admitted 
was 1520 to 1570. The middle 50% of ACT scores was 34 to 36, uh, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, these, are, these are students that tend to be um, smart students that have worked hard and, and uh, are, are well prepared. Well, we appreciate that, of course. And what are the different ways a student may apply to Duke University? And Christoph, is there a benefit to applying one way over the other? Well, first of all, there there are two applications that students can use, either the common application, which is what most students use, and also the coalition application. Uh, it, it, It does not matter to us which application a student uses. It's entirely up to them. We treat them exactly the same. In terms of programs, we have one early decision program and we have one regular decision program for our first-year students. So we have have a binding early decision program. The deadline is for applying is November 1st. We typically give students uh, their decisions in the middle of December, sometime by the 19th, somewhere between the 15th and the 19th is when we like to post decisions. It depends on how many applications we've received and, and our ability to read them in, the, in that relatively short time frame. Um, we also have a regular decision program. The deadline for that is typically January 2nd or January 3rd. This year, the deadline is January 3rd. And we typically notify students of their decisions in, in late March, sometimes early April. We, last year, we received about 4,000 early decision applications. This year, we've received 4,800 early decision applications. I expect we'll probably receive around 45,000 regular decision applications. Um, there is a benefit to applying early decision. It's a smaller applicant pool. Uh, we will, I expect we will we will fill a little under half of the class this year with students who've applied early decision. I expect we'll probably we'll probably admit somewhere between 800 and 820 students early decision uh, for a first year class of about 1700, 1720. Uh, the, the, the rest, the majority will, will be uh, regular decision applicants. Um, and there is, if a student is, is willing to make that commitment, to applying early decision, to the binding commitment that says if you're admitted in December, you're committing to enroll, uh, that has some value to us and there's a, there's a benefit to applying early decision. Well, we appreciate that. And of course, I know that Duke University is also test optional like many schools. Can you share the percentage of students that apply and that are ultimately admitted that did not submit their test scores? Yeah. That's a great and, and important question. Uh, a little under half, I, I'm, I don't know exactly, we, we haven't yet processed every applicant. I, I'm thinking about 45%, somewhere between 45 and 48% of the students who've applied this year uh, will end up not submitting testing. So slightly over half of the students that applied will submit standardized test scores, either the SAT or the ACT. The percentage of students that we admit that have not submitted test scores will be a little, will be a little lower than that. It'll be, uh, it'll be maybe, a, maybe a third of the students um, who we admit this year will not have submitted standardized test scores. So the percentage of students that apply uh, who do submit test scores are a little over half 
I, I think by the time we we uh, make admissions decisions of the ones we admit, it'll probably be closer to two thirds, um, maybe a little higher, maybe not. Um, the students now who choose to submit test scores or not submit test scores, most students at this point have the opportunity to take SAT or ACT scores. And then they have the choice about whether to submit them or not. And what happens, not surprisingly, is that the students with the stronger scores are the ones that tend to submit those scores. Our process, and I want to be very clear about this, our process does not care whether someone has submitted or not submitted standardized test scores. Our rating system does not include standardized test scores in our rating system. So when we're reading applications, we treat everybody exactly the same. If somebody submits standardized testing, that's an additional piece of information that they want us to consider. And like all additional pieces of information, if that information adds something positive to the application, that's a plus factor. Well, we appreciate that. And I'm just curious because there's a lot of conversations about the test optional movement. Christoph, where do you see the trend going in the future, again, in terms of test optional? I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the next two, three, four years as students who have and students who have not submitted standardized test scores go through college and colleges will have the opportunity to see how students who don't submit test scores and how students who do submit test scores, how their path through college is different, if it's different at all. And we will just have to wait and see what happens. My guess is that most colleges that are test optional now will remain test optional in the future. I think, I think what's likely is that test optional is here to stay, but I also think it's possible that the language around test optional that colleges use may change once we see what happens with 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 our students who have and who have not submitted standardized test scores. We may make some recommendations about, about who might benefit from submitting standardized test scores. I'm not sure yet because we haven't seen the data yet that, that will tell us whether in fact there's any difference between students who do and don't submit scores. If there's no meaningful difference, if the path through college is the same, if the graduation rate is the same, if the courses are the same for students that haven't submitted scores as opposed to those who have, then I think we will just, we, we won't change it. We'll be test optional and we'll just say, um, you know, submit them or not submit them. If there's a difference, then I think colleges will be in an interesting position to make suggestions to students about who should or shouldn't submit test scores. But I think we're just going to have to wait probably about another two years until we have any sense of that at all. Well, I appreciate that. And a moment ago, I believe you mentioned that standardized tests are not part of your rating system in terms of being a part of the overall application process. Christoph, can you share with us what is, in fact, part of your rating system? Absolutely. We give five ratings. Uh, we use a scale of one to five, five being high, one being low. And we evaluate 
five different parts of the application or five aspects of the application. The first is the strength of the student's curriculum within the context of what's typical at their school. When we consider a student's curriculum, we consider it within the context of what's available at the school and what the the good, strong students at that school typically do. So that's one rating. Then we give a second separate rating for their academic work, how well they do in those courses, the, the grades that they've received. There's one rating for the strength of the curriculum, as I mentioned, one rating for the grades. The third rating is for the recommendations from the school. That includes the counselor's recommendation and the two teacher recommendations. And if we uh, have an alumni interview report, that will be part of that rating as well. So we have the recommendations rating, then the extracurricular activities. What they do outside of class is the fourth rating, and the fifth one is the application essay. Curriculum, grades, recommendations, activities, essay. Those are the five things we rate all on a scale of one to five. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that, Christoph. We really appreciate the insight. And recently, I received some emails from parents whose children are actually homeschooled. Can you offer them any insight in terms of how the application process differs for their children who may be homeschooled? One of the things that I've seen in the time that I've been working in admissions, which has been a good while, is the increasing number of students and families uh, who are homeschooling. And it's a good choice for some families that feel that that's the most appropriate thing for their children. We leave the decision about, about what school to choose or whether to homeschool entirely up to the families. The main thing is we treat the application exactly the same. If someone's homeschooled or not homeschooled, the, the things that we rate, the aspects that we rate, uh, the way we rate, they're all the same. The one suggestion that I have for families who are homeschooling their children is it's valuable for us to see how a student who's being homeschooled compares to their peers academically in some context. It's one of the reasons why, why we are interested in seeing if a student is being homeschooled, are they taking any classes at a high school or are they taking any classes at a local college? Uh, it, it's, one of the, it's one of the things we value when they, for example, have uh, advanced placement scores, not just the courses and the grades. Did they take advanced placement exams? How well did they do? If they've submitted standardized test scores, we find them useful. So any information that, that gives us a way to compare those students in the context of what other students at their grade level are doing, that we find valuable. But the process is the same for homeschooled students as it is for everybody else. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you so much, Christoph. And how important are students' courses in progress and grades in their senior year? And what are you looking for when reviewing them? Uh, yeah, senior year. Senior, <laughs> year's a, senior year is a challenge. Senior year is a challenge 
for a number of reasons. One of them is typically it's the most challenging academic year for any student. And then on top of that, they are their activities are, are ones where they are often taking leadership roles, so they have more responsibility in their activities. And then on top of that, they have to apply to college. And, and that's a lot of work. That's a, that's, a, that's a good amount of work. So senior year is challenging. And we understand that senior year is challenging. What's important is that students in their senior year continue on the path that they were on in their first year and especially in their sophomore and in their junior year in high school. We want to see grades that are similar to the grades that they've received before, assuming that they were good grades. If they were not quite as good as a student would like, we'd like to see the grades improve. But the main thing is not to slack off. The main thing is not to hit your senior year and and to go, okay, uh, I'm just going to take it a little easy. I'm going to cut back on the number of challenging courses that I'm taking. I'm, I'm going to be comfortable getting grades that are a little less than what I received in my junior year. That's not what we want to see. And, and to be honest, most students work very hard to keep up their, their good schoolwork. What's important also, I think, is that students not overcommit themselves in their senior year. Some students feel that they need to take absolutely the toughest curriculum they can possibly take. They overload on tough courses. And I think it makes some of them miserable. I think they, they find themselves overstressed, overcommitted. I want to emphasize that, yes, we want students to challenge themselves. Yes, we want them to do well. But we don't want them to be unhappy. And we don't want them to, to over-challenge themselves in a way that they are unhappy not getting enough sleep, and feeling stressed all the time. So a good curriculum, a good solid curriculum that's challenging, that gives them the opportunity to shine, and then to do well, that's what we look for in the senior year. We occasionally will find students where their senior year performance is so different than the previous years. We've been in situations where we've, where we've revoked admissions decisions because a student's senior year grades, uh, in the, particularly in the second half of their senior year, are so different than what's preceded them. But that's uncommon. Wow. But thank you so much for sharing that. That's uh, very interesting. So students, make sure that you continue to put your best foot forward uh, in all four years of uh, high school. Thank you so much, Christoph. I appreciate it. And of course, another piece of the overall application are the students' essays. What are some examples of college essays that really stuck with you? And what advice would you share with prospective students in terms of what to think about as they're sitting down, getting ready to write their college essays? Can I tell you that my thinking on essays has actually developed over the years that I've been doing this? And uh, in part because what, what we see so much of are very well-written, well-crafted essays that, that, that use beautiful language, but where I don't feel like we've learned very much about the applicant. So my thinking on essays has changed some so that the, the beauty of the writing, the craft of the writing is actually less important 
and our ability to learn something of value, some insight into the student is more important. But what are the consequences of that? The consequences of that, the primary consequence of that, from my perspective at least, is that a student's essay is the most successful when it sounds good being read out loud. When we read essays, certainly when I read essays, I'm reading them with an image in my mind of who that student is. And I'm reading that essay not as a written essay, but as a student talking to me about what matters to them and what they think about that. And so language that is more like spoken language is more valuable to me, makes for a better essay for me than language that that uses words that a student would not use in normal speaking. And I think that now it doesn't have to be a dialogue. It does, you know, it obviously it's being written for an adult who's who's reading this this important document. Um, but a, a, a student's essay should sound good, should sound natural and fluent if it were read out loud. And that's my, that's my primary advice for, for students wanting to write good essays. I will say the, the best essay that I've ever read, it still sticks with me, and, and this was probably from 10 years ago, was actually not from a student who had applied to Duke. Um, she applied to and, and enrolled at the College of Holy Cross, and she and I um, had the same guitar teacher, and, and she would take her guitar lessons after I had mine. So we got to talking, and uh, I once asked her if I could see her essay and, and that I'd be you know, happy to give her some advice. And she showed me her essay, and, and I, said, um, th- I said I wouldn't change a thing. It was not a perfect essay, by the way. It, it, was, it was an exceptional essay. It wasn't perfect. There were, there were one or two small errors in it. Um, but as a whole, in terms, of, in terms of using language, in terms of the conclusion that she drew, in, in terms of the pictures that she painted, the language was, was not fancy language, but it was put together in a way that told me about her, that told me about what she was doing, told me about what she learned. Um, and, and it really gave me some insight into her. So she wrote about what she cared about. She wrote about what she learned, and she, and and she wrote more or less as if she were speaking to me. Well, I appreciate that, and I love how you shared that the essay should sound good if read out loud. And students don't use words you wouldn't use in normal speaking, right? Christoph, admissions reps know when it's your authentic voice or when you've had multiple people revise it and uh, tweak the vocabulary on your behalf. So again, we really appreciate that insight. Yeah, I, I can't stress that enough. And, and I think that, that um, high school students don't sound like adults. And thank goodness. And an, <laughs> an essay that, that sounds like an adult has written it keeps us from getting to know the student. And, and our task in reading the application is just trying to get to know who this student is because we are, we are trying to find students that we want to welcome into our student community. And, and the, the, the better we know them, the, the better their chances are. 
Well, we appreciate that. And of course, the teacher letters of recommendation are obviously another part of the overall application. What are some of the things you're looking for in terms of helping to enhance an applicant from the teacher's letters? I want all the teachers out there to know how much we value their letters of recommendation. They are uh, the the letters of recommendation from the teachers and the counselor are just critical in terms of us understanding a student because it's from the teachers that we learn what kind of a student somebody is. One of the interesting things that, that we know is that you can have 5, 10, 15 students in the same class get the same grade, but they're different kinds of students. For some students, it comes very naturally. Some students have to work hard at it. Some students support their fellow classmates. Some don't. Some add energy. Some just sit quietly. Some are disruptive. Some are funny. Um, What the recommendations do is they help us understand what kind of student somebody is, what kind of person they are in the classroom, what are they adding to the class? Are they adding energy? Are they adding insight? Are they adding curiosity? Are they adding interesting questions that other people hadn't thought of? Are they adding support to the other students? Are they adding a little humor? Are they adding kindness? Are they making people feel better? Are they making people feel worse? Uh, all of those things that are that that are happening in the classroom that aren't always reflected in the grade, but that are so much a part of what kind of student somebody is. That's what we're interested in, and that's why examples examples of the qualities that stick out in an applicant are what are so valuable when we're reading teacher recommendations. And when we're reading counselor recommendations, it's the same thing. What kind of person is this in the the school community? What kind of impact have they had in the school community? And what are examples that, that show us that kind of difference, that kind of impact? Well, that's great insight and great examples. I really appreciate that, Christoph, more than you know. And of course, another piece of the overall application is a student's activity sheet. What kinds of things, Christoph, are you looking for beyond the work that they completed in a classroom? I think that a lot of students spend a decent amount of time thinking about what we're looking for. And and I will say that even my own child, when he was applying to college, uh, he was pretty good at doing the things that he was interested in. But every once in a while, he would ask me how something would look to the admissions officers reading his application. I want to say a couple of things. One is there is a word that we don't use in the admissions process because I think it's it's overused currently, and that's the word passion. I think students sometimes feel as if they have to have a passion, as if they have to have one thing that is the center of all that they do and and that is the most important thing to them. And some students have that. Some students have something that that their whole extracurricular world revolves around. I think a lot of students don't. And and students that are interested in two or three or four or five things, students that have a wide range of interests that don't hang together. They're just interested in a bunch of different things. They, They spend time with different groups of friends because 
because their different friend groups are interested in different things. That's perfectly okay. That's entirely acceptable. It's just as good to, to, be, to, to be a person with a lot of interests as it is to, to be a person that has a, a small number of interests. I think students are different. Everybody's unique. Everybody's, everybody's got the things that they're interested in. So what we care about is not how many things you're interested in. What we care about is what matters to you. What do you care about? What's important to you? What have you done about it? What kind of commitments do you make? And then are you making something better? Are you improving something? I, I think that sometimes people feel that they have to create an organization or found a nonprofit organization, that, that, that that's their way of showing commitment and impact. Uh, my sense is it, it can be more difficult, more challenging, more rewarding to take an organization that already exists, a club that already exists, and to make it better, to change its direction, to have it have more impact. You don't have to create something new. What we look for again, is what matters to you? What do you care about? What things do you care about? What are you doing about it? Are you making something better? Are you making people feel better? Well, that's fantastic to talk about what matters to you, not necessarily feeling that you have to create something new, but perhaps become a part of a club and talk about what contributions you gave to that club. How did you make it better? I think that's great insight, Christoph. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Unfortunately, it leads us to the last question, which is, what are your top three pieces of advice that you would give a student and their parents who are getting ready for the college admissions process? Thank you for asking that question. And, and I think that it's a challenge for students. It may be even more of a challenge for their parents. As parents, we care so much about, about the well-being and the success of our children. And, and uh, we want them to do well. And more importantly, we want them to be happy. So I have some advice for, for parents. The first, the first piece of advice for parents is if there are boundaries that you are going to be setting, for your child in terms of the kinds of school that they that 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 they can attend whether it's distance from home whether it's uh, uh, whether it's the cost you know, those sorts of things if there are if there are limitations on on the kinds of places that your child can attend and there should be as few of them as possible by the way but if there are constraints put them on the table ahead of time at the beginning of the process, not at the end of the process. Put whatever constraints you've got at the beginning of the process. And then once that's done, let your child choose the college that they attend. This is their decision. It is their life. It is, we all had our chance and now it's our children's chance. Whether a school is right for them is all that matters. If if, if it's a school that we would or would not have wanted to attend is really irrelevant. It's, it's, our, it's our children's opportunity. So any constraints that you're going to set, set them ahead of time and, let, and then let students choose 
within that afterwards. Give, let them make that decision. The second advice for parents is to take the long view. Sometimes we as parents get wrapped up in the, in the happiness or lack thereof or the disappointment uh, of, our, of our children, and, 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 and we, we amplify that. You know, we, especially if they're disappointed, we, we tend to amplify that rather than take the long view to say, you know, in the big scheme of things, things tend to work out. And, and going to a particular college or not a particular college is not nearly as important. In fact, it's not all that important at all. And what's much more important is what do you make with the opportunities that you've been given? So the degree to which parents can take the long view to, make, to understand that this is your child's decision, not your own decision, um, and, and let your child choose what's right for them. Uh, I, I think that's I, I think that's my my second piece of advice for for parents. For students, the piece of advice that I have is is to make sure you've got good reasons for why you're applying to every college on your list. And I know that some students apply to a good number of colleges. A good list includes colleges that you're pretty certain you're going to be admitted to and some colleges where you've got a chance you're going to be admitted to and some reach colleges, all of which is appropriate. But make sure that every college on your list is one that you would be happy to attend, that you've decided is a good match for you and that you've got good reasons for wanting to go there. I I think that's just, I think that's critical. And then regardless of where you're admitted, you've got you've got good choices. And I think that just makes the whole process work, work better. In the end, everything's going to work out. I was, I was actually listening to a presentation by a, a Duke alum who was a former staff member uh, in our office who was talking about, um, she came to Duke. Um, she did not get into her dream college. She had a dream college. She didn't say what that dream college was, but it wasn't Duke. She didn't get into that college. She came to Duke and she was talking not only about how exceptional her Duke experience was, she talked about how transformational it was to go to Duke. And she said, I can't imagine going anywhere else. So in the end, where she landed was the right place for her, even though at the time she didn't think it wasn't her dream school. So things tend to work out for the best. They tend to work out very well. And the students, students are resilient. They are positive. They know how to take advantage of opportunities. And they end up landing very, very well. Well, Christoph, those are tremendous insights and great pieces of advice. I cannot thank you enough for this awesome conversation. It was an honor to have you. I really hope to have you again. And I'm so happy because I know that this conversation is certainly going to help so many students and their parents. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. I completely enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please don't forget to tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am your host, John Durante, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Cap. What's up, podcast friends? I'm happy to announce that we've teamed up with some fantastic affiliate partners to further enhance your overall college journey. So do you or someone you know need stylish dorm decor, 
trendy college apparel, or top-notch test prep, whether it's creating a cozy home away from home, flaunting the latest in college apparel, or securing top-notch test prep help, we've got you covered. Check out our affiliate links in the show notes within each of these categories, which we believe will help you, our listeners. Please note that if you make a purchase through any of our affiliate links, the podcast does get a small commission, but rest assured that we would only promote products that we believe in and feel would benefit you, our listeners. So check out the links in the show notes and share with anyone you think may benefit. Thank you all and best wishes. 